we're so used to seeing things that, in my opinion, aren't quite right in our treatments of animals. Yeah, the less we eat, the less violence is being done, and the less destruction to the environment. Everyone eats, and everyone has to make a moral decision every time that we sit down to the table. The Animal Voices Radio Show, Western Canada's only radio program on animal advocacy and compassionate living. This is 100.5 FM Co-op Radio CFRO on unceded and ancestral Salatus, Musqueam, and Squamish territories in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. Today is Friday, November the 13th, 2020. I am your host, Alison Cole, and I am joined here today by our co-host, Leah Thompson. Hi, Allison. It's been so long since I've done a show with you. I'm excited to have you back. Thank you. Happy to be here. Welcome to the show. We are in mid-November here now, and did you know that November is World Vegan Month? World Vegan Day was November 1st, and we continue into November for World Vegan Month, which is celebrated around the world as a time to recognize how far the vegan movement has come, to reflect on our successes, and to highlight how accessible and beneficial a vegan lifestyle is. For today's feature interview and discussion, we'll be exactly speaking on some of these topics. We'll have local vegan blogger and social influencer Sandra Nomoto on the show. She'll tell us about her vegan journey and her favorite resources for becoming vegan. And we'll discuss many of the reasons to go vegan and stay vegan. That interview is coming up in about 33 minutes, so please do stay tuned. And for our first interview on today's show, we'll be speaking with Executive Director of the Vancouver Humane Society, Amy Morris. VHS has just started a new campaign where they'll be working with social service agencies to decrease the barriers to women and their companion animals from leaving risky situations to entering safe housing. VHS has a grant of $30,000 and is looking to match this funding so that they can help 100 women and their animals over the next year with their expenses. VHS's hope is that these companion animals can continue to be a valued family member, providing the mental health supports that women in crisis need. Before we move on with the show, Animal Voices listeners, Will and Pam reached out to us recently to ask for our help to make an announcement in their search for land. They say, we are an animal abolitionist couple looking to lease eight plus acres of arable farmland in the lower mainland or southern Vancouver Island to start a vegan organic farm. The owner should not have livestock or beehives and be open to a long-term lease, ideally 15 plus years. If you or anyone you know have such a space to offer, please contact Will and Pam at 604-536-2627. Once again, that's 604-536-2627. You can also email them at laniaki18 at shaw.ca, and I will spell that out, L-A-N as in Norman, I. A-K-E-A-18 at shaw.ca. Hopefully someone out there will be able to help them out. 
So this week on Wednesday, November 11th, we observed what's known as Remembrance Day, which is a time to sit back and reflect and remember those who who fought and died for us in, in wars. And, you know, I, I hate war personally myself, and but I do understand this is a part of our history. And I understand that so many people put their lives on their line. And that actually really, it really hurts me to think about what they went through. But did you know that there were also many, many millions actually of animals who served even just in the First World War, which was 1914 to 18? Were you aware of that, Leah? Yeah, I was. Oh, you know more than me then. I just came upon an article tonight because I really wanted to take this time during this show to at least acknowledge animals about the types of jobs that they have had historically in wars and not you know, not at their own choice. There's an article from a couple of years ago in The Guardian called The Animal Victims of the First World War Are a Stain on Our Conscious. That's by writer Philip Hoare. And he says that 16 million animals served between 1914 and 1918 with a huge loss of life, yet their indispensable role is largely ignored. So we are going to take some time right now to actually acknowledge the role that some of these animals had. So we're going to be doing some readings from this article because it's just, he just says it really well, but we'll, we'll discuss a little bit as well as time permits. So he says they are the truly forgotten dead. 16 million animals served in quotes in the first world war and the RSPCA, that's the Royal Society for Protection of cruelty to animals estimates that 484,143 horses, mules, camels, and bullocks were killed in British service between 1914 and 1918. Some died before they reached the Western Front of 94,000 horses sent from North America in 1917. 2,700 drowned when their vessels were sunk by submarines. Trench dogs hunted for rats in the trenches. Others carried messages. The German army alone employed 30,000 dogs. In a canine echo of war horse, dogs were recruited from animal shelters. And when that supply ran out from the general public, this one English woman, she wrote, I have given my husband and my sons, and now that he too is required, I give my dog. I, I find that to be just truly heartbreaking. In no man's land, dogs did jobs that humans could not, such as taking supplies to the wounded so they could treat themselves. And mercy dogs would stay with dying soldiers to keep them company. Such stories bear witness to the loyalty of animals. Dick, a black retriever messenger dog, was wounded in action but recovered enough to resume his duties. He developed a limp grew weaker and had to be put down. A postmortem showed that he'd been working with a bullet dodged in his chest and a shell splinter close to his spine. So there's other animals that are as small as birds. And Leah, you're going to speak about those now. Other animals acted as canaries in the mine. One South African unit had a baboon called Jackie with sharp hearing who would tug at men's sleeves if he detected enemy advances. 
Slugs were used when it was discovered they could visibly demonstrate their discomfort in the presence of mustard gas in smaller quantities than humans could sense, allowing soldiers to don their gas masks in time. Some animals may have been grateful for more placid roles. At the vast military hospital at Netley on Southampton Water, where thousands of shell-shocked troops were treated, including the poet Wilfred Owen, donkeys were employed to calm men suffering from PTSD. On ships, dogs, pigs, and even magpies became animal spirits to deflect the stress of war. And also around 100,000 pigeons served too. One delivered a message from a U.S. battalion trapped behind enemy lines that said, Our artillery is dropping a barrage directly on us. For heaven's sake, stop it. The bird's work was so important that they were protected by the Defense of the Realm Act, which criminalized any attempt to kill or maltreat them. It was an ironic implementation of animal rights to mirror the first conservation law in Britain introduced by the 8th century Saint Cuthbert, who declared that the aider ducks of the Farne Islands should be protected. Ironic because during the war, huge rafts of aiders at the rest in the North Sea were used by the Royal Air Force for target practice. Whales were used for the same purpose. It was the first time cetaceans had been seen and photographed from the air. One account noted, In the half-lights, these huge monsters bore a strong resemblance to a submerged U-boat, and, as the rule in war was, when in doubt, bomb. A good many of them were killed by our aircraft. Meanwhile, 175,000 whales died in the South Atlantic to furnish rifle oil, fuel for trench stoves, and oil to protect against trench foot. Germany culled dolphins and seals for their oil. Whales were also co-opted to deal with food shortages. As Michael Fremantle notes in his book, The Chemist's War, Lever Brothers had worked out how to hydrogenate whale oil to make it fit for human consumption. Most terribly, these placid animals were processed into munitions themselves as their bodies yield glycerin for bombs. So, so I learned some things here for sure, but what I think the bottom underlying message is that all of these animals were used in times of war and continue to be used in times of war. This is just World War One, And again, it was without their consent. Did they know what they were doing? Were they happy doing it? Hard to say. Were they scared carrying out these tasks? Dogs, especially, as I know, they can get really scared about some things, but in other ways, they're really brave as well. But that kind of seems to be beside the point. What do you think, Leah? Yeah, I think it's interesting to me how the article talks about animals being grateful for being in placid roles, because I think regardless of like what their role is, it's still, a, I mean, it's still a position of a power dynamic that they're being put into where... We don't really know if they're happy doing something because we're forcing them into that role. So even if it seems to us, oh, that that's a better role for them to have. I mean, they would rather not be <laughs> there at all, I'm sure. Yes, the article ends in the fitful periods of peace in the last century. There was no arms discs for animals and monuments to their efforts are few. London's Park Lane Memorial being a noble exception. I'll have to go there one day. 100 years after the First World War of the Anthropocene, itself a perversion of nature and fought for the Earth's resources, these non-human casualties remain as an indelible stain on our conscious. But the least that we can do is, I believe, acknowledge them and 
and definitely remember that they've been a part of this history, whether it's been good or not. Like I said already, I, I don't support war and it, and it breaks my heart to think of not only humans, but young humans, usually teenage boys, but all these beautiful animals being made to go out there and, and be a part of the fighting against each other for really, for things that I, I really hope we've gotten past now, but there still is war. So you can find this article on our Facebook page, Animal Voices Vancouver, and it'll be posted on our website too. Let's have a moment of silence now, please, for all the millions of animals who have served and perished in wars. Are you a renter in Vancouver wondering how you'll be able to pay rent during the pandemic? Are you worried about rent debt or the possibility you might be evicted from your home? The Vancouver Tenants Union has your back. They have been very busy during the COVID-19 crisis trying to affect legislative change that protects renters all over the city from rent debt, rent increases, and eviction. Find out how you can be involved by visiting their website at vancouvertenantsunion.ca or send them an email at tenantsunion.yvr at gmail.com. The Greater Vancouver Food Bank has been providing support for our cities for almost 40 years and has been vital to helping thousands of community members through the COVID-19 crisis. To find out how you might benefit from the Greater Vancouver Food Bank's services, or to learn how you might donate money or volunteer your time, please visit their website at foodbank.bc.ca. Now we have some news to share. The country which holds the world's largest number of minks killed for fashion, Denmark, plans to kill more than 15 million minks due to fear of a COVID mutation moving from the confined mink populations to the general public. Last week, it was announced by Danish Prime Minister that 12 humans have been infected with the COVID-19 mutated virus and that minks are now considered a public health risk. Army police and National Emergency Service are mobilizing to help farms with this cull, which will eradicate the entire Danish herd. So do we know how the minks passed on the virus to people? Mm -hmm. Was it while they're still alive and was it to mink farmers? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's been passing from the minks to the farmers who then go into their communities and pass along to other peoples. And there's estimations that it's like even higher, even higher numbers of people have have gotten been infected through through this process from the minks. Right. I know that Denmark is a large producer of, uh, well, they have a lot of mink farms there. And from what I understand, mink farms house thousands and thousands of minks. The reason I asked you is because just like factory farms, there's typically not a lot of humans around. So I'm, I guess there has been contact, maybe biting or aerosols and that interesting story. We shall keep following that. 
An article from The Independent reported on a new study published in Science Journal, which looked at how various strategies involving the food system could help reduce greenhouse gases. They found that even if fossil fuel emissions were immediately halted, some degree of dietary change would be necessary to keep global warming below 1.5 degrees C above pre-industrial levels, which is the most optimistic target of the Paris Agreement. As we've talked about before on the show, and as it mentions in the article, food production currently accounts for one quarter of the world's greenhouse gas emissions, with animal flesh and dairy specifically accounting for 14.5% of all emissions. So this is just another study to really affirm that switching to a plant-based diet is, is really for the earth and the well-being of the planet as well. Well, that article is saying that it's it's a must-do now for the planet. And for people who haven't seen the film Cowspiracy yet, I highly recommend that you do. It can be seen on Netflix. And it's uh, it's an environmental film, but it's not boring. So it's gonna it's one of these films that not only entertain you, but also really expose the truth to what is actually happening out there in terms of so-called environmentalism and how the animal agriculture industry affects it. And of course, we have done a lot of shows about this as well, animalvoices.org, if you want to learn more about how things like methane emissions are coming to conflict with our earth and making our earth more and more unsustainable as years go by. So there's some good news coming from Rasta Animal Sanctuary on Vancouver Island. Yeah. They have been struggling to raise money to replace their old aging barn. And celebrity and longtime vegan Pamela Anderson visited them and was inspired by their hard work and has offered to pay for it. So congratulations to them. And this is great news for their residents whose home is getting spruced up. Well, when I read that post from Lucy, who runs the sanctuary, this is in Chimenez, just on Vancouver Island. So sort of a, a well-known kind of local animal sanctuary here. She We actually interviewed her on the show years ago, if you want to check that out. And she told the story about how she actually moved her whole sanctuary that she had in the prairies, maybe Alberta or even one province over. I can't remember. She moved all the residents to Vancouver Island and started a sanctuary there. I think that was a good choice on her part, given the climate on the West Coast versus the climate on the prairies, right? That might have been the reason. I don't remember. But, you know, we've been following her and supporting her endeavors all throughout this. And the day that she posted about Pamela Anderson, you could see she's just so filled with joy. She's so optimistic now that what she thought was going to be an impossible endeavor, she'd been quoted at $450,000 due to COVID to get this barn built. And now Pamela's partner is a contractor. So he's agreed to take on the project. I'm so happy about that because those animals there just deserve so much. So lastly, there was a new article in the Vancouver Sun on grizzly bear facial recognition technology. This new tech addresses the need for reducing the invasive practices of conservation experts who track the movement and lives of bear populations. This cutting-edge AI makes it so that cameras alone would be able to identify bears and collect data remotely, foregoing the need to capture tag and take samples from individuals. So this is also really good news because at first I didn't really understand why they would need facial recognition of bears, 
But now that I know that they have been capturing bears in order to like find out who is who and follow them, this seems like a really great way for them to basically leave the bears alone. Thanks for the news, Leah. And now it's time for your interview with the Vancouver Humane Society on their new campaign to help women escape homelessness with their companion animals. Amy Morris joined the Vancouver Humane Society as its executive director in January of 2020. She most recently served as the BC SPCA's policy and campaign animals manager. Amy has wide experience in the animal protection movement, campaigning for policy changes at the municipal, provincial, and federal levels to curtail animal exploitation. Holding a Master's of Public Policy from Simon Fraser University, focusing on policies to regulate dog breeding, Amy uses her knowledge and skills to bring about real and positive change in animal protection. Amy also serves as the Vice President of the Animal Welfare Foundation of Canada, an all-volunteer organization that provides grants for improving animal welfare. Hello, Amy. Thank you for joining me today on Animal Voices Radio. Thank you for having me. So you work with the Vancouver Humane Society. Can you please tell us more about the work that you do there? As the executive director of a really small organization, I end up doing a little of everything. So I do IT, accounting, HR, budgeting. I have to plan for the year and apply for grants. And then I also do kind of program oversight and design for all the different program areas that we have. Thank you. We saw that you were running a new campaign to support women and their companion animals fleeing homelessness. Can you please tell us more about this campaign and how it came to be? Uh, Well, I think it's important to kind of go back to generally what VHS does, and, and that is focusing on keeping people and pets together and preventing surrendering to shelters, potentially euthanasia, or rehoming of animals when they're already in a loved home and in a in a bonded family. And so we've been supporting people in that way for many years. And what we were finding is sometimes there were situations that didn't quite fit into the criteria of that program we had, particularly when it came to doing some preventative care for people and their pets and preventative is things like deworming or or defleeing or vaccines. And particularly, we were also finding that some of the people who were reaching out to us identified that they were having trouble paying their rent and then they were risking losing housing because they needed to meet their pets' needs. And so we know that that women are uniquely affected by homelessness and, and many of the people who reach out to us are women. They're less likely to appear in shelters or drop-in spaces. They're less likely to access social services. And from Women's Homelessness Coalition, there's an estimated 700 women turned away every day from domestic violence shelters. So that's a pretty harrowing number to think about in Canada. And we know that women will, for example, they'll live in cars, they'll kind of couch surf, sleep on couches, and have informal arrangements where they're trading maybe sexual intimacy for a place to live. They might be camping, they might be abused as living caregivers. And so all of these situations are made more difficult when someone has a pet because they're not just caring for themselves and wanting to provide some kind of housing for themselves, but they're trying to make sure that their pet's needs are met. And we know that uh, as well that housing is so hard to find for low-income women with pets. And so really recognizing that for these women, their pet really is their safety net and their comfort and their consistent you know, support, we wanted to find ways 
to get women into safe housing that they they and their pet could be supported. And so we looked at some of the barriers of why women would not be able to access housing. And so one of those barriers has to do with the, the requirements of, of pet-friendly housing. So often the pet has to be spayed or neutered. They have to have vaccinations. They, they need to be treated for fleas. And a woman who is scrambling to even have a pet deposit is not necessarily going to be able to provide these treatments for their pet. And we know as well, you know, if, if a woman has to decide, do I get this surgery to fix the cruciate ligament tear on my, my dog's knee or do I access housing? Well, they're going to choose the surgery. They're going to choose to help their, their pet. And so how do we cover those costs so then they can use their income to pay for, for housing and rent? And so that's really the, the conception behind the program. And then we applied for a grant to access funding for it. And, and so we're successful in that grant. And now we're looking to match that grant with funding from donors. Wow. So essentially, you're helping people pay the well-being of their companions so that they're able to put their money towards the, their, the rest of their money towards their housing and anything else that they might need. Exactly. Yes. And, and really looking at how a lot of social service agencies don't have funding for pets. And so they may have money to help with housing, but they may not have the money to help with pets. So just partnering with them to make sure that more women are able to access safe housing. Well, that's really interesting. I also wanted to talk about just last month, Vancouver City Council passed a motion to end no pet rental rules. I'm curious as to how you anticipate this might affect humans in the community who face these housing barriers as they are living with animal companions. And how do you see your campaign and work as supporting this new motion and vice versa? Yeah, this motion is really interesting. It has kind of great bones to it. It's a great theory to to make sure that the city of Vancouver is supporting people in accessing housing with their pets. And it's really going to come down to a few different things. One, they've said that they're going to ask the province to look into this issue. And the province historically has not responded well to restricting landowners' rights to decide who accesses their housing. And so <laughs> the, you know, the city might be able to recommend to the province to do something about it. If the province does something is, is a very different story. And, and they have the legislative authority over this area. The city can also, they have their own housing that they administer. And so there's an opportunity for the city of Vancouver to make all of their housing pet friendly, to reduce barriers and I, I really hope that that's a step that they take as a result of this. At the same time, I've heard a lot of criticisms that the city of Vancouver's low-income housing is still fairly expensive, that, that people have a hard time covering the cost of rent for that housing. So I think in a way like this program is covering all of the people who probably could not even afford the city of Vancouver's low-income housing. People who are at such an income bracket that living in Vancouver, you know, seems almost impossible. And, you know, even if their job, even if they have a job and their, their job is in Vancouver, 
they struggle to even live anywhere near <laughs> where they work. And so just trying to support that and, and improving the lives of women and their pets. So as it stands now, the motion is just a recommendation for the province to take this into consideration. It doesn't actually mean that all housing in Vancouver is pet friendly moving forward. It does not. Yeah, it, it also, it's not just a recommendation to the province, it's also a recommendation for staff to look into the issue and see what can be done by the city. But their jurisdiction stops at basically at where they exist as a landlord. So obviously, as a landlord, they have a lot they can do. For example, BC Housing, as, as a landlord, uh, allows pets. So it, it makes sense, especially when providing low-income housing, to make it as low barrier as, as possible. But the, they haven't made the decision yet to do that. They've just recommended it to staff to look into. So is there anything else you want to tell us about this campaign or, in general, work that the Vancouver Human Society is doing? Well, I think probably I've, I've covered most of, of the issues that, that we're covering with this project. I, I think, you know, there's kind of to share a little bit about how the program will work is that we'll be partnering with social service agencies and they'll be referring clients to us as well as the possibility of other other clients can reach out to us and, and they'll fill out an application and we'll also be partnering obviously with veterinarians to get discounted services and so it really is quite collaborative Thank you again to Amy for joining us today on Animal Voices Radio. You can find out more about this wonderful campaign on their website at vancouverhumanesociety.bc.ca. You can also follow them on Facebook at Vancouver Humane Society and on Instagram at Vancouver Humane. This week for events, there are three online meetings happening that we would like to share. This Saturday from 9 a.m. to 10.15 PST, the Aquatic Life Institute is hosting a panel discussion on Zoom on the topic, What do the U.S. election results mean for animals? Immediately after, from 10 to 11.30 a.m. PST, is another Zoom event hosted by Fernando Cuenca with the Northwest Animal Rights Network on animal advocacy in countries ravaged by war, drawing on his own experience growing up and founding an animal rights organization in Colombia. On Sunday, November 15th, from noon to 1.30 PST, there will be a meeting with the Vine Sanctuary Book Club with special guest and author of this month's book, Beasts of Burden, Sonora Taylor. If you have an animal-friendly event that you would like to have us advertise on Animal Voices, all you have to do is either send us a message on our Facebook page, Animal Voices Vancouver, or you can shoot us an email at radioanimalvoices at gmail.com. You are listening to Animal Voices on Vancouver's Co-op Radio, 100.5 FM CFRO. 100% listener-sponsored radio broadcasting live from the east side on unceded Coast Salish territories. November is World Vegan Month. It's a time to celebrate the lifestyle of veganism, which embraces compassion and joy for the planet as we strive to do the least harm to our fellow creatures with whom we share this planet Earth. 
For our feature discussion today, we have local Vancouver vegan blogger Sandra Namoto on the show. She is an Asian Canadian spiritual, health conscious vegan content writer and editor on a mission to empower others to make small, meaningful decisions and actions that will help make the world a better place. She recently wrote an article on her blog on sandranamoto.com called The Five Reasons Why I'll Be Vegan Forever. And wow, did it resonate with me. So I invited her on the show at this time to share some discussion on these topics for World Vegan Month. Hello, Sandra, and welcome to the Animal Voices Show. Hi, thanks so much for having me. I'm a big fan. Well, thank you for taking the time to sit with me here via Skype to have a chat about all things vegan in terms of our worlds and our knowledge of the lifestyle. First, though, I would love to hear about your personal background. Your website says you're 38. Can you tell us about your vegan journey and how you came to embrace the vegan lifestyle? Yes. So my journey, I think like many people, uh, began with the documentary Earthlings, which I saw about two years after it came out. So I hadn't heard about it until 2007, closer to the end of that year when Uva Bowl, who's a, a notable filmmaker here in Vancouver, he decided to put on a special screening at UBC. And uh, his wife at the time was my former boss. So she invited me out to the screening. I had no idea what to expect. And was just, yeah, blown away by, by the footage that I saw. I saw UBC athletes, like really big. I don't know if they were football or basketball players, but they were walking out of the theater 10 minutes in. And I thought, Hey, if I can sit here and, and watch this, you know, I felt pretty good about myself seeing that after, after some people walked out. But what really hit me was at the end of the screening. There was a woman, they did a Q&A with a woman uh, from the Vancouver Humane Society and somebody asked her, what is one thing that we can all do to, you know, help the situation for these animals? And she said, stop eating meat. And that was huge for me because I, I grew up, you know, in a big meat, meat eating household. And, uh, but I knew deep down like that, you know, that was one big thing that I could do to affect change. And so at first I, I started a year just cutting out all of meat except for chicken because that was the hardest for me. And then a year after that, I started cutting out chicken, moved on to seafood, which I was not a big fan of, I can, I have to say. But I was pescatarian for many years after that. So pretty much a decade being pescatarian, but mostly eating fish, seafood only on weekends. So I learned to cook vegetarian during the week for myself. And then it wasn't until uh, my husband and I went on our honeymoon in New York City in 2017, and I ate the best seafood meal of my life, I'd say, by Mor- at uh, Morimoto, who's one of the iron chefs. And I said, you know, it's not going to get any better than this. So I'm, I'm leaving on a high note. <laughs> and be- eating vegan was was always the, the, the top goal. You know, I just didn't put a time limit on myself. So after that, I was vegetarian. And then a year after that, I went to my naturopath, uh, a really painful bout of what I now know I have is, is underactive stomach and found out I was sensitive to dairy after taking that a food sensitivity test. And yeah, after cleansing dairy for four months, I thought, I guess I'm vegan now because that was the goal and I was able to do it. So that's my journey. It took me 11 years, but, uh, but here I am. Well, good for you. It's always interesting for me to hear different people's journeys. They all start in different ways. They all progress different ways. And 
it's interesting to at least know that they all end at the same place. And now I'm vegan, right? But this is how I got there. And we share these stories because there might be people out there listening who are thinking, wow, that really resonates with me. That's sort of where I'm at. I'm a pescatarian and my goal is to be vegan. And she just inspired me. So I'm excited about that. We are just talking about on the show last week that with our co-host Elise, that watching Earthlings also changed her. Moving on. So what does it mean for you to identify as an Asian Canadian vegan? And how has that presented challenges for you in the past or present if it has? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if those things go together. Uh, They obviously go together in my life, but I've honestly never really thought about it. But I guess the initial challenge for me was just moving away from the the previous diet that I was eating to, yeah, to a kinder diet because Filipino cuisine, um, which is what I was used to growing up, is very big on on meat. And, you know, I'd like to be able to cook that more um, just with using meat substances. Uh, I've never cooked with, you know, something like seitan before. I'd love to try, you know, cooking like a, a vegan version of chicken adobo, which is a big dish. But I would say at first, you know, my dad laughed at me when I said I wanted <laughs> to go vegetarian because he was raised, you know, his family had a farm and at 12 years old, he was, he, he was taught to, to slaughter goats and, and do all of that. But as time went on and, and, and uh, my habits were changing and my family saw that, they really actually started to to say how much they admired me and I really, you know, respect them for that. None, none of them are have moved in that direction. And bless my mom, you know, a couple of years ago, she tried to make panfit, which is a noodle dish, very similar to chow mein. She said, hey, I made this, it's, a, it's vegetarian, it's for you. And I looked and it had all this seafood in it. And I went, God bless you, mom. You know, she tried, she took out the, the chicken for me. Um, but, you know, as, as, as long as you keep telling people your story and, and that it's your personal goal, I think that really, that's what influences and impacts people, at least, you know, around the circle of, friends and family that I have. It sounds positive. It sounds similar to my situation with my parents where my mom at the very beginning, she's a very good cook. She would actually purposely make food for me that had bits of ground beef or chicken or whatever hidden hidden in it. Of course I could find it. And because she obviously thought I would die if I didn't eat meat. <laughs> and, and now it's been like 26 or 27 years later. And she knows it's been, she just cooks vegan. And my sister went vegan too, right? Because of me while she was, I believe this is while my sister was living with my parents. So my mom is very used to cooking vegan. And not only that, but she now just cooks vegan for my mom and my dad for both of them which is inspiring to me if you can at least make an impression on your family that's supposed to be a really Mm. something that's often really insurmountable for even very famous vegans who are knowing activism like all over the world like even their parents aren't vegan (laughs) it's so silly but I'm glad that you've made that impression on your parents that's great and and actually actually I, I do want to mention my one of my aunts said that we had a distant relative in the Philippines that created patented veggie meat in the Philippines. Nice. And, and uh, yeah, it's called Oscar Ann's. It's, it's not available here in Canada, mm-hmm. but I actually was able to meet my extended aunt who lives here in Vancouver. And I, I've never met her my entire life. And we just lived 10 minutes away. So that Whoa. was actually 
really amazing to meet her earlier this year and and sample some of the the goods that uh, she she usually gets brought in by her brother and yeah that's that's pretty amazing that's awesome that's just meant to be so i know you're very interested in living a conscious and spiritual life can you tell us what it means for you in terms of living a vegan lifestyle how do the two go hand in hand yeah, so even though I don't practice Catholicism now, that's that's a religion I was raised up for, yeah, for pretty much two decades in. And for me, you know, spirituality is being the most kindest person you can be. And that, for me, went so much along with the, the lifestyle of being vegan. It's, it's being kind to the animals, you know, that we cohabitate this earth with and, and to the environment. I mean, we're, we're destroying our home in so many ways and not a lot of people know that, that a, a vegan diet can contribute to, to alleviating that. Yeah. And there's just, there's so many elements of, of kindness. There's so many people still living in poverty. I know it's hard for people to imagine because we're in COVID that 800 million people in the world each year still die of starvation. And, you know, if we could only shift some of the resources that we're giving to animals over to people, you know, we'd, again, we'd be solving some of the world's biggest issues. So, so for me, it touches on so many issues of, of being kind and being a good person and just a good citizen. How does someone become conscious, do you think, in the way that you've described it? It seems like it just made you just more aware of everything that is just happening around you. How does one achieve consciousness? If I had the answer, I'd probably <laughs> be publishing a book about it. But I think it's different for everyone, right? Like some people got to hit rock bottom before they realize that for themselves. And, you know, you could start with books, so many podcasts, so many thought leaders to follow, um, vegan or not, right? And I yeah. think everybody has to come across that aha moment for themselves where they realize something in my life's got to change or I've got to start advocating for something positive, whatever the issue is, and you start moving in that direction. Yeah. And then again, for me, veganism just happens to hit on so many levels. Like I, I want to save my environment. I want to be mm -hmm. kinder to animals. I want to be kinder to people and help feed people who don't have access to water or food. So for me, it's just, it's just such a natural component of how I can live my values now. And would you say that was all triggered when you saw earthlings and that like sort of gave you answers to what you had been looking for? Uh, yeah, like I said, yeah. I wasn't even looking for answers. I, I, I didn't know what Earthlings was about. <laughs> but when right. I saw that, when I saw that, like it, it, yeah, the big thing for me was the animals, right? But as I started, so, so right away, I, I was gifted with two cookbooks, The Kind Diet by Alicia Silverstone yeah. and Quantum Wellness by Kathy Preston. And those books went a little bit into the environmental and the health aspect of it. But it really wasn't until I read the China study, I think a couple of years later, that I, I learned plant-based diets could alleviate a lot of chronic diseases that we face now. So heart disease, cancer, and diabetes. So those are huge. They're hitting mm -hmm. everyone, you know, globally. So for me, that was another big component, health. And then later on, again, it wasn't until I saw cowspiracy, it really hit me in the face, the environmental aspect of, of animal mm -hmm. agriculture. So, so again... As I was moving along and, see, you know, started seeing these documentaries, I went, whoa, okay, vegan is the goal. Vegan is the goal. And I just kept thinking that in my mind to the point where now, now I'm living the lifestyle. I guess all these opening in consciousness, they all, they all blend together, right? And so that's why, you know, veganism is the end goal because then 
than everything here that I want to achieve in life, having learned about the environment and about health and about animals and about human rights issues. It all gels together. I think that's a good message for our listeners. Like if you care about any of these one things, then then learn more about it, work on it, and then your consciousness shall open up. Because that's what I find yeah. in veganism is that you're so open to learning more things. And because what it comes down to is everything in life is interconnected. So it's impossible to escape, you know, say I'm uh, an, I'm an animal lover, but I, uh, I really like my dogs and I really like eating cows. Oh, but I care about the environment too. Oh, cows yeah. are so bad for the environment. Maybe, and I said, I'm an animal lover. Maybe I shouldn't be eating cows. And then more about health. If you read the China study, oh, dairy is really bad for you. It turns on cancer cells. Like maybe I shouldn't be eating dairy. And oh, I just looked at this uh, six minute video called Dairy is Scary on YouTube, which I'm directing people to. And wow, I can't believe how horrible the dairy industry is to the animals. So it makes sense on those counts to stop eating dairy. And then you suddenly find yourself a vegan, <laughs> a compassionate yeah, and kind and, vegan who's open-minded. Yeah. And I think so many of, you know, the, the, the era of social media and YouTube now, like all this information is is readily available at your fingertips to, to access. It's so much easier now to, to be educated on the reasons why versus before when we didn't, you know, we only had books and maybe yeah. the odd documentary, right? Everyone's got Netflix now. There's a whole pile of, of films on there that, that can be seen. Yes. So I want to talk about you've made your lifestyle decision of doing the least harm, which is called Ahimsa. And I want to know, how does that dovetail into what you decide to do to make a living? Because sometimes, you know, we become conscious, we become spiritually awakened. We don't want to harm animals. We don't want to harm the earth. And then, oh, look at the job I'm doing. Um, I'm working at a restaurant that serves meat. I no longer feel comfortable about that. I'm working for a pharmaceutical industry that's testing on animals in these really cruel tests before they go to human trials. Maybe I'm not okay with that anymore. How does one find a life where you can make a living for yourself that is connecting to your newfound vegan values? And how, how have you done that yourself? Yeah, again, I, I don't have the, the magic pill for everybody. But for me personally, it was around 2011 when I was, again, moving towards becoming more vegetarian, also trying to live more of an eco lifestyle. And I was an independent publicist at the time running my own little business. And I realized, you know, the handful of clients that I had, I personally wouldn't have bought their products or services. And I went, you know, something's got to change here. And so I actually rebranded my company and moved more in the direction of trying to find clients that were being more socially or environmentally responsible. And yeah, and that was huge for me because you want to go to work every day knowing that your whatever you're doing for work and how you're making your living is reflective of your own values. And I think that's true for everyone. Mm -hmm. And for me, you know, I closed my agency in 2018 and spent a good part of last year, 2019, figuring out what I wanted to do next. And it just sort of became crystal clear to me at the end of 2019 that writing is something that is always going to be part of my life, whether it's just, you know, me blogging on my own site, 
or doing it for clients. And so at the beginning of 2020, I actually launched this new business, just me focusing on content writing and editing for cruelty-free businesses. So now I'm still working for clients on my own, not doing PR, doing a, a different service, but I can be very selective in who I choose to work with. And by servicing them, I feel like I'm making the world a little bit of a better place because I'm not contributing, you know, to a company that may serve animal product or leather or, you know, be harming people in some way. And I think that's, that's really important. Yes, thank you for doing that. It's a great, not only a great service to provide. We live in Vancouver and there's a lot of cruelty-free and vegan businesses happening in Vancouver. So thank you for offering that. And I know that vegan business owners, whether they're a big business or it's a sole proprietorship, they are looking for vegan professionals to work with because we just feel better about, about supporting the vegan community, right? And knowing that, actually knowing that the the publicist or the writer that you're going to hire actually knows about the stuff that you want them to write for instead of it being sort of fake, right? So that's yeah, a great you, business. You want to work with you want to work with partners and suppliers who again align with your own values. Mm -hmm. It just makes for such a, a better working relationship. And as a result of of moving in this direction, I've discovered so many great business networks that are just for vegan business owners. So vegan mainstream out of the US. There's there's a lot of directories too. So if you want to find people to work with or you know, you want yeah. them to find you, great great way to do that is just to sign up and put put your business out on these directories. Be kind is one that just launched this year that is one of my clients and they're just, yeah, they're they're awesome. They trademarked veg economy because they really believe that the economy can can grow as a result of vegan businesses working together. So let's talk about some of the five reasons why you'll be vegan forever. Your number one reason is cruelty to animals. That was we discussed. You know, there's so many reasons about this. Actually, your education on that began with viewing Sean Monson's groundbreaking film, Earthlings, which is available for free to watch on YouTube and is a must-see for everyone. What are some of the key points that you would like to express to our listeners who are just driving in the car, perhaps, or listening to the show at their work? What are your favorite talking points to use when you're conveying messages of animal cruelty as a reason to go vegan? I know I have my own, and it kind of depends where the conversation is going to, but I guess if someone said to you, hey, Sandra, I noticed you're only eating vegetables. Why are you vegan? Well, I mean, I would probably start with one of those five reasons, right, depending on the person and what I know of them. So for example, I've got a friend whose kids love animals, they went to the zoo recently. And I found that interesting, because I know that they don't eat a vegan diet. And so if, if there was an opportunity to just have that conversation with them and say, Hey, do you love animals? Well, why do you eat them? Right. And just, and that's it that like, it doesn't need to turn into an, you know, an argument or yeah, trying to influence their next meal, but just getting, getting them to think about it, I think. And kids are so smart. They will figure this stuff out. They'll find it on the internet and figure it out themselves. And it's not the fault of the parent because, you know, parents are just, we're raised how our parents raised us. So I think it's just finding that, that window and that open door to a conversation where then, you know, they may be open to trying something different. 
Right. I think a big topic these days that people are are talking about a lot is COVID-19. So do you ever speak to people about zoonotic diseases? Because I know I sure have. I started the pandemic off actually by uh, researching and doing a whole show about zoonotic diseases. So it's something that's been on my mind. Is that something that's come up for you? Uh, not really. I mean, I, I probably haven't been as social this year as I normally would be because so, so it hasn't really come up in conversation, but I've been posting a lot as much as I can about it, you know, without being intrusive on, on people's feeds. Um, but just remembering that that's why this whole thing started. It's, it's, it's the, the wild animal trade. Yeah, that that fueled the whole thing. And um, I do appreciate that a lot more articles are coming out on the fact that factory farms are are very prone to to starting the next zoonotic disease. So I appreciate that the media are are constantly reminding us of that. But uh, but yeah, I I don't think the mainstream, because we're still in it, the mainstream media hasn't focused so much on the cause, which I think people still need to remember. It came from our treatment of animals. Yeah, and that's why I've I've been producing shows on the topic because every time we're on the radio, it gets out to thousands and thousands of people who may not otherwise ever learn this stuff, right? And and um, it's a yeah. way for us just to get the message out there. So I noticed in your article that you touched upon one animal cruelty issue that I actually was just trying to educate my friend about this a few weeks ago, and. I do always bring it up when he seems to forget about it. And and it's something, it's an image that we show at the TV outreach for animals downtown or when they're doing a, a, an AV cube of truth. It's an image of what happens to male chicks in the egg industry. Can you tell us about that and as why that's a reason why you'll never go back to not being vegan? Uh, well, I'm not an expert here, but from what I know in the dairy industry, you know, the male chicks, they don't have... Uh, yeah, egg industry. Oh, sorry, egg industry. Yes, they don't have the ability to produce more eggs. And so they're just thrown into a grinder in, in mass in mass quantities. And uh, I've seen that footage. It ain't pretty. Um, and uh, yeah, warning for anybody who wants to, to go and research that. But uh, yeah, just just by supporting the egg industry, you're... You're supporting killing, not just the eating of the eggs, but, but uh, yeah, the disposal of the male chicks. And it's, it's really, really unfortunate. Yeah. And what you'll see if you look this up anywhere is these, I've had a lot of experience with baby chickens and newborn chickens growing up. And I have to say they're the most precious little beings you could ever see. They pop out of the, of the egg. They, they become really fluffy. They're so cute. They don't know anything. They don't know anything. They're just babies. They're a day old. They know how to cheep. They know how to poop. They know how to be super cute. And then imagine all of you and your brothers and sisters, you're put on this big conveyor belt. And this is just like, say, moments after you've been born. You've been sexed first. Like you've been thrown through this really aggressive uh, machine where workers will grab on really aggressively to the chicks, uh, press down like to see if they're a boy or a girl. 
and if you're a boy you're you're thrown in the, in the really bad area that you don't want to be because the next thing you know is that you're going down a conveyor belt and you're dropping off the conveyor belt and there's a lot of blood down there because you're suddenly being yeah. shredded and macerated and to me alone that's a reason to never eat eggs. So that's a point that I try to make upon people, when, especially when those images are running past us. And I say, see, that's eggs. And that's, that's all egg situations, even organic. <laughs> it doesn't matter. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And I've, I've been to the P&E and they show the, you know, the little chickies, uh, yeah, hatching and, oh, yeah. and running around in those little warm lights. Like how, yeah, why As a, would you want to, to yeah, cause damage the children, to them? Like, the children are always around that I know because I was a child myself. Yeah. You wanted to touch the little sweet hatching chickens there. And, and of course that's, it's children and they have their natural, you know, empathy and compassion, but that is somehow, you know, sort of like beaten out of us when we're into adulthood, which is a whole nother conversation, right? Finally, on the topic of animal cruelty, Sandra, why don't you consume honey? Because some people consider themselves to be vegan, except for honey. I think they're called vegans or something like that. I don't know. Oh, oh gosh. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, it's, it's been a while since I posted my blog on that. I think I did that uh, last year. But uh, yeah, it was just one of those ways I wanted to document for myself why honey is, yeah, that doesn't count because there is still harm being done to bees. Yes, there's there's a, a safe way to do it. But um, in the uh, mass produced industry, it, it's actually, yeah, it's actually quite harmful. And, and I believe the way that they extract the pollen as well is, is not great for when bees return to the hive. And then there are also things that they do to the queen bee. I think they clip her wings or something like that. Again, yeah, I, I, I forget the facts. Um, I've documented in it in my blog. But yeah, the, doing that research, I think, really helped me. And the fact that there are, there are not many, but there are a few folks making vegan honey. So, you know, we're really all eating it for the taste. You know, if we knew that we were causing harm to the bees, which, by the way, if we lost the bee population, our whole food system would crumble. So these are so important. Yeah, like we should just make, make full, full honey. Like, why not? <laughs> well, I, I don't even go that far. You can buy some yummy apple-based honey from Vegan Supply downtown. And I know that there's other yeah. vegan honeys as well that just use plants. But I personally just use agave or maple syrup. It's just a bit of a sweetener. It's got viscosity. And that's all you need. You don't need honey. Honey is a yeah. lot of bee regurgitations, those poor things. And it takes so much work for them just to produce a, the, a minuscule amount of honey. So it's not something we need in our lives, especially when there's substitutes. Well, I have a meat-eating friend who has been following the Excelsior Hug Farm in Abbotsford pig trial that I've been covering on the show since last year. So he's seen the footage of what is happening to the thousands of tortured pigs living in horrendous conditions while they are being forced to give birth to generate the next lot of pigs and then get slaughtered to feed the people in British Columbia. He said to me, well, I only buy meat from his ethical meat stores. He said they were Oyama sausage and two river meats. Well, I had to look online because I know where the Excelsior meat goes to. They go to Johnson's distributors. And I said, well, 
my friend. They get their meat from Excelsior, both of your favorite places. <laughs> and actually, Excelsior is known to be the best of the best in BC. So that's why they're supposedly amazing pig flesh is going to these retailers that say that they sell like high-end meat. He said to me, well, there's got to be cruelty-free options for people who won't turn vegan because a lot of people aren't going to go vegan, but they don't want to support cruelty. So what are the cruelty-free options of eating meat? And I said, well, there's clean meat is coming. And we already do have Beyond Meat being sold in stores in the meat section. That is specifically for meat eaters mm. to buy. So I'm asking you, Sandra, what are your hopes for clean meat and vegan meats like Beyond Meat? Do you think these are the meats of the future that are going to replace the meats that people who just won't go vegan, are they going to start eating these these clean meats that are made in labs or just meat like Beyond Meat, I would hope? Well, yes. I mean, yes to both. Uh, like, I think it's starting already. I think it was so brilliant that Beyond Meat made that bold move to try and sell the plant-based patties in the meat aisle it's happening in my grocery store. Yeah, like that's that's one huge change. Like my husband now, he's not vegan, but but every now and then when he wants to do a barbecue, he'll pick up he'll pick up some Beyond Meat. And so no, it's not the most healthiest thing, but like you said, it's free of cruelty and it tastes almost exactly if not exactly like, you know, I remember beef tasting and that's really why a lot of people eat meat. It's for the taste. So number one, I think if you can switch to a plant-based version and, and if not, you know, beef, we will get there. You know, we will get there with the chicken. We will get there with the seafood. Just be patient. The options are coming. And if you're one of those people that, yes, you want to continue to eat the real meat, the lab-grown meat is coming as well, the clean meat, as, as you referred to it. I know Memphis Meats down in the U.S. is working on it. I've referred to the documentary in my blog called Meat the Future, M-E-A-T. Yes, Liz Marshall. And, uh, yeah, and... Yeah, and I was really impressed by that. Like they're they're working on it, and it's real meat muscle or whatever you call it without the cruelty. So, you know, the bigger that those companies get, I think I would rather pick those up in the meat aisle than you know than the than the butchered meat. So so the options are coming, and I, I yeah I tell people you know whether you want to try the veg or you want to wait for the for the lab grown, they're coming. So I want to talk about health and fitness for just a little bit here. I noticed in your write-up about that, that you spoke about your own fitness gains with in continued stamina. And there's a lot of resources out there. Everyone, watch The Game Changers on Netflix and you'll learn how following a plant-based diet, going vegan and eating, you know, of course, fueling yourself properly. It's going to it's going to give you great gains and you can also learn about so many high-level Olympic even athletes who have achieved way better strides in what they're doing in their athleticism as a career by listening to the Ritual podcast, which I like to recommend to everyone. He he has yeah. a former Olympian on his show this week, which I just just downloaded. It's some super Olympian. But what about for you yourself? Can you just tell us about how fitness worked for you when you became vegan? Yeah, so I've only been eating vegan for two and a, two and a half years or so. And at first, I did not see anything significant. But this year, I noticed that, yeah, at first when I would, you know, I go for 15 minute runs two or three times a week. And by the end of that 15 minutes, you know, I'd be 
pretty slowed down. But this year, I noticed that I could keep up the same pace as when I started my run. And uh, instead of trailing my husband by a block, he's he's actually just right behind me now. So that that's probably the number one thing I noticed. And I and when I noticed it, finally, I was like, how could this be? And I thought about the game changers. You know, I'm not an athlete. I don't understand the science of it. But I, I do remember them talking about recovery time. And I think that's it. It's it's that my muscles are not as tired as they normally would be. And say I would were to go to the gym and do some some heavy weight lifting the next day, you know, usually you're painful a little bit, but your recovery would be faster on a vegan diet than otherwise. And I think that's that's huge, if, you know, for both athletes and just the everyday person. You don't want to be walking around uh, slow. <laughs> <laughs> Right, right. So this is sort of on the same topic, because improving your athleticism isn't just about doing the workouts, but it's about what you put into yourself as well. So what is your diet like? Do you eat a whole foods plant based diet? Or are you sort of moderate and you enjoy the vegan treats? Like I want to know what kinds of foods you eat. Yeah, I would say mostly whole food plant-based diet. And pre-pandemic, my husband and I would probably go out to a restaurant once on the weekend, but we're doing that even less frequently now. And so I think I'm healthier this year as a result of just doing a lot more cooking. So you're finding, like myself, that you're going out and buying a lot of fruits and veggies that you'll actually eat and not let go to waste? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, regardless, I tried not to waste food. But one one cool thing was when we were going out to the grocery store less because there were, were a lot of lineups. For a couple of months, I was ordering the boxes from Eternal Abundance, which is an all vegan organic grocery store. And, and that was cool because like, you know, typically I would only choose certain veggies to use organic, but they're all organic. So with them, you don't even have to make the choice. You're just getting organic (laughs) naturally. Well, it sounds like you're eating the best foods possible. But when you were eating at vegan restaurants pre-COVID, I'm also interested to know what are some of your favorite recommendations in the city and or dishes that they serve? Um, it depends on what I'm craving. And we're so lucky here in Vancouver that it doesn't matter, you know, what you need, whether it's kind of the fast food diner, there's meat, M-E-E-T, you know, chickpea serves the, the Middle Eastern style food. There's a lot of Vietnamese options from uh, doche to veg- chow veggie, veggie pizza, virtuous pie. Um, and there, there's a new one that opened up this year, Grano uh, Pizzeria, that's oh, very right. plant based. That's great. I'm big on desserts. So I'm big on ice cream, you know, big fan of Uma Luma. Yeah. And so many de- like bakeries coming out with options. It's, yeah. We're really lucky here in Vancouver to have all the options for vegan. It's totally true. Uh, when I go out, I really try to only patronize vegan businesses. And as a vegan living in Vancouver, it's completely possible. Absolutely. And I don't even live in the neighborhood. Actually, we have a virtuous pie here on campus where I live, which was very, very Mm. tempting to me when it first opened, but I had to curtail back. So, but it's definitely there as a treat if I ever need it. I just have to drive down the road and it's there. (laughs) So I'm lucky to have that. And then we have a jam jar express up the street, which is very nice. Lebanese food. They have a couple things there that I really enjoy and they're well priced as well. So that's what I have in my neck of the woods. And of course, there's always Dharma Kitchen as well, which is just down the road on Alma Street. Yeah, I haven't actually tried that one. 
Oh, it's healthy. You'd like it. Lots of whole foods. It's Buddhist food. So very, very tasty. So make sure you go there after the renovations when you can one day, especially after the next few weeks when we're sort of out of this lockdown that we're in right now where you can't really go anywhere. So that's okay. We're just, we're fine here making podcasts in front of our computer, right? <laughs> it's yep. fun. It's my hobby. Let's see. Let's see. What else do we have here? Because we've gone through a lot and I, I guess I want to touch upon this. Your fourth reason, which we did touch upon before, is about humanitarian issues. And you state that this is just common sense. If we shifted all of the land and clean water from animals to the 800 million plus people each year who die are of starvation, then what happened? So you, you acknowledge the difficulties in logistics for this, but... It's a start in progressive thinking, which can then be following the progressive steps and advances in technology. So what do you think about this whole world that we have of food disparity? We have so much wealth and land that's arable in one area of the world or in several areas of the world, but then there's places in third world countries where people aren't getting fed. How do we change that scenario? And you say here, so long as most of the population eats meat, we will never achieve human equality. So maybe we can go even more broader than that in, in that aspect. Yeah, I mean, to me, clean water access and food security is, is such, it's like my core issue, right? If we can't feed people, then we can't educate them. So it would be even harder to convince people of the reasons to be vegan. But I, I, I think we should be moving more in the direction of being imperfect vegans and not striving for, yes, if you can do 100%, great. But if most of the world was 80% vegan, you know, again, we would be shifting a lot of those resources going to animals to be feeding people that would alleviate the global poverty situation. And yes, I know economics is a huge part of it. So in the global South, they don't have access to clean water. They're not capable yet of, of farming and, and producing their own food and so much of the food is being imported to them that's got to change you know it's it's, it's going to be systemic but I think if, if there's a way that people and organizations can move on this incremental take in, incremental steps to alleviating that and just recognizing how much of the land we're destroying again for for animals being grown for food we would be improving so much, giving survival to people and then animals and their habitat as well. Yeah, that's really important. You also make a point about humans' rights issues in terms of people who are vulnerable and forced to work in slaughterhouses, basically. So you say in the article that most workers at animal processing plants are the poorest populations, they're predominantly people of color. They have also been some of the most susceptible in our nations in contracting COVID-19 in their tight-spaced slaughterhouse and butchering workspaces, with the largest COVID outbreak in Canada taking place at the Cargill Processing Plant in Calgary earlier this summer. So if I'm speaking to someone who says they don't care much about animal rights issues because they were more into human rights issues, then what I do is I tell them about the human rights issues involved with the animal agriculture system because everything is interconnected when it comes to relations that humans have 
to do with everything in the natural world. Can you tell us more about the human rights issues as how it impacts you as a compelling reason to stay vegan? Yeah, so it wasn't until I read an article by Jonathan Safran Fowler in the New York Times. He's the author and producer of Eating Animals. One of the best books and must read books ever. Yes, I agree. And he pointed out the fact that a lot of the people who work in slaughterhouses and factory farms are on the front lines um, are people of color. And so if you say you want to fight for racial justice and for social justice and equal pay for everyone, you got to get on board with this. And that, that was re- the reason why I wrote this blog, because that was reason number five for me that I did not know until this year, until he wrote that article during the pandemic. And I remembered back to the chicken slaughterhouse we have here that, that's owned by Hallmark Farms. There was a, a, an Asian Canadian man who, who died of heart failure after a 13 hour shift. And he probably wasn't uh, earning all that much as well. Yeah, I just thought about how these industries are literally killing people of color. And so if you want to get on board with with the social justice issues, the animal industry is indirectly responsible for that. So that was that was an eye opener for me and the reason why I wrote this blog. There's so many reasons why working in a slaughterhouse is so poor for human beings. We've definitely have covered that on the show. If you want to look at Animal Voices and International Human Rights Day or just slaughterhouse workers. So for World Vegan Month, we've talked about numerous reasons to go vegan and stay vegan. Last year, we had Colleen Patrick Goudreau on the show who had just written a book about how to sustain veganism. And she says that the most common reason that people shifting to veganism revert back to eating meat is because of social situations. People say they don't want to say no to the Christmas holiday turkey in front of their whole family, or they feel awkward going out with meat-eating friends to meat restaurants where it's hard to find something to eat. This is the reason why they recede and go back to eating meat. What would be your advice to listeners who are interested in living the vegan life or if they are doing so but need some help sticking with it? What do you say about the social aspects of the lifestyle? Yeah, I really empathize with that because for me in the beginning when I was cutting out meat, I would make that that special exception for holidays. Um, because yeah, it's hard to think of yourself when you're the odd one out. But I think number one is think about your own values. If you prioritize any of the values that we've been talking about so far over what your mom thinks of you or (laughs) what your friend thinks of you at the potluck, you know, that's going to weigh a bit heavier. And number two, all you have to do is ask or suggest, right? So if you're not the host, ask, hey, are there going to be any vegan dishes that you're going to make that are going to be available to me? If not, suggest that you bring your own that you can share with everyone. And I found that's worked so well for me and my family and friends. You know, I'm, I'm usually the one bringing the, bringing the, the staple veggie name and everyone gets to enjoy it, including myself. So yeah, plan ahead and think about your values. Those are, those are the, the top two things I would suggest. Yes, and nothing should hold you back from trying to protect animals and to avoid the animal cruelty that is just so rampant in our world. If you want to learn more about these issues, we've covered them many times on animalvoices.org and you can just uh, just sign up for our podcast and you'll you'll become veganized because yes, you're right, Sandra. There's um 
there's all these reasons why you'll ne- why you'll never go back to eating meat, and there's lots more as well, and there's lots of context that we didn't have time to, too much to talk about on our show today. But finally, Sandra, is there anything else that you would like to share with our listeners? Any future projects, or just any final words for World Vegan Month? Just uh, yeah, um, Happy World Vegan Month, and if that's something that you want to move more towards to. Yeah, help the animals or yourself and whatever values you espouse. My blog is at sandranamoto.com. I've got a ton of recipes up there as well as the blog that we've been talking about. And follow your favorite vegan influencer. There are so many celebrities now jumping on the bandwagon. A lot of vegan media outlets you can follow. So again, if you're not ready to go 100%, you can go and make those baby steps by just getting informed and following the folks that inspire you. Thank you, local vegan writer, foodie, and ethical entrepreneur, Sandra Nomoto, for coming on the show with us today for World Vegan Month to speak about your vegan journey and all the important reasons for becoming and staying vegan. To learn more about Sandra's work, you can visit her blog website at sandranomoto.com as well as her business site. You're the content doctor at thecontentdoctor.ca. Thank you, Sandra. Be safe and happy World Vegan Month to you. It's been a pleasure to speak to you. Thanks. Likewise, Allison. You've been listening to the Animal Voices Radio Show on 100.5 FM Co-op Radio on unceded and ancestral Tsleil-Waututh, Musqueam, and Squamish territories in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. Next week, please join us for the show on Friday, November the 20th. Grace will be producing the show and will be featuring an interview with the owners of local business Simply Delish Soup and Salad to speak about their vegan business and family. We here at the Animal Voices Show modestly ask you to keep connected with Animal Voices via the World Wide Web. Our past shows can be listened to on our website at animalvoices.org. Our past podcasts are also available on Apple Podcasts and Google Play, so you can subscribe to us there and never miss a show. Join our Facebook page and join us on Instagram, both at Animal Voices Vancouver. And if you want to get in touch, let us know how we're doing or send along show segment suggestions. You can send us a note on Facebook or send us an email to info at animalvoices.org. To close the show today, we are playing the song Vegan Style by Henya Mania in honor of World Vegan Month. Stay tuned for Radio EcoShock with Alex Smith. Thank you so much for listening to Animal Voices today. Stay safe inside and remember to be kind to the animals. This is Vegan Style. Vegan Style. Check.
This is Vegan Style. Vegan Style. Oh, 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 oh. This is Vegan Style. Vegan Style. Oh, 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 oh. This is Vegan Style. This is vegan style. 